Good morning, everyone. Welcome on this Labor Day weekend. If you are here, that means you had nowhere better to be. And so, or, or you didn't do so much yard work yesterday that you're too sore to make it. So uh, I am always grateful that you, you are here and we get to look at the Word of God together. Uh, a couple other notes as we begin. Uh, Alina Carell has accepted the uh, position of associate, uh, worship associate. And so, yeah, she's here. Uh, so she started uh, this weekend, so this is it. So you can uh, make sure you welcome her this morning. And lastly, work has started on the avenue. So we are very, very excited about that. Yeah, to see, so met the plumber over there, and the, the electricians have begun. And it's not exciting stuff this far, but uh, very soon walls will be going up. And we are hoping, we're praying, we'll know soon if October-ish might be a grand opening for us. So we say ish because we hold it very lightly and know how construction works. But we are shooting and hoping that we'll be there in October according to God's will. Genesis chapter 27. We are in our series called Jacob, Genesis Jacob, a story of transformation based on the life of Jacob. We have uh, done a series on beginnings. We have done a series on the life of Abraham And now we're doing a series on the life of Jacob as we work through the book of Genesis. Now, I wonder if you've ever found yourself in a bad place in life. You've come to a place and you thought, I am not in a good place right now. I am in a bad place in life. I I found some pictures recently of some some people that that might find themselves in a bad place, or or animals, as it were. Uh, You know, if you just... It's a bad place. Like, you know what I'm talking about? Um, if you were this particular dock worker, you might find yourself in a bad place, right? Yeah, ouch. <laughs> Oops. Uh, I found another bad place here. This employee was apparently in a very bad place <laughs> when uh, he or is no longer working at Walgreens. And lastly, the driver of this truck has found himself in a very bad place. I, I don't know if you've ever found yourself in a bad place, but today we're going to find Jacob in a very bad place. And what we're going to discover today is that in a bad place, God gives us grace and he moves us towards transformation. In a bad place, God gives us grace and he moves us towards transformation. So Jacob is the grandson of of Abraham. God made a special covenant with Abraham and his descendants. Jacob is going to inherit the mantle of God's blessings. And Jacob is a piece of work. As God interacts with Jacob, we are going to see God transform Jacob. That's really what this series is about, is about transformation. And God is going to transform Jacob from the inside out. So today what we're going to see is Jacob finds himself in a very bad place. He has everything he wanted, but it didn't turn out the way, exactly the way he wanted. He's in a bad place, and in a bad place, God gives grace, moving him towards transformation. You and I can relate to Jacob because there are times where you and I just find ourselves in a bad place. We just do. We know this. If you're in a bad place or if you've ever found yourself in a bad place in life, 
you can relate today. There are three things I want to highlight today from the life of Jacob in Genesis chapter 27 and chapter 28. And the first one is this. When you're in a bad place, you need to know that God knows why. When you're in a bad place, God knows why you're in the bad place. God knows your backstory. He knows everything that it took for you to get to the place you are when you're in that bad place. I don't know about you, but I like certain television shows that tell backstory. I loved the TV series Lost, if you ever saw that from years ago. Even the end of it, right? Some people hated the end of it. I liked the end of it. And one of the things I loved about Lost is they told a story, and then they would stop, and they would do an entire episode on the backstory of a particular character. All of a sudden, you learn the backstory of that character, and you say... That's why she's the way she is. That's why he's the way he is. The backstory revealed it all. Well, the truth is you and I, I have a backstory. We didn't get to the place in life we are today in a vacuum. We didn't just, poof, oh, here's where we are in life. This is why we are the way we are. We, don't, we all have a backstory. And we, that's how we got to where we are because of the decisions we've made or certain events that happened to us. God knows your backstory, and he knows why. Jacob has a backstory, too. If you were to just come to Genesis chapter 27 without a realization of Jacob's backstory, it may not make a lot of sense. And so let me bring you up to speed. We went over this the last two Sundays, but let me bring you up to speed reminding you. There are three key events that have happened to Jacob. First of all, it was his birth. Jacob is a twin brother. He has an older brother, Esau. Jacob was born minutes after Esau. A few minutes changed a lot for Jacob. A few minutes changed a lot. In fact, when he was born, he was grabbing the heel of his older brother who came out first as if to say, no, no, you don't. You're not going to get out first. I'm going to get out first. We see this figuratively means deceiver. Heel Heel grabber in Hebrew, the name Jacob, figuratively means deceiver. And so right from the get-go, we see this. We see that a few minutes, being born a few minutes after his brother denied him a lot. It denied him a larger inheritance. And it denied him a word of blessing from his father. In Hebrew culture, we would think, okay, what's the big deal? My dad didn't give me a word of blessing. I'll go and make my own life. But that's not the way it worked in the Hebrew culture. For someone to be successful in the eyes of the, the culture around them, they needed the blessing. And so it denied him these two things. That's the first significant thing that happened to Jacob. He was born. The next significant thing has happened is he decides that he's going to manipulate circumstances so that he gets the birthright or the larger inheritance. So years later, we see Jacob out in a field preparing meals in a tent, and his brother Esau comes wandering in, and he swindles his brother Esau out of his birthright. The birthright was a double inheritance that went to the oldest child. Esau should have gotten this, but he sold it to Jacob because he was so, Esau was so hungry he was about to starve. Years later then we see the third key event in Jacob's backstory, the blessing. Jacob deceived his father. Isaac is about ready to bless Esau. And Jacob comes because Isaac is nearly blind And he dresses up as Esau. He puts uh, lambskin on his arms because Esau was a hairy guy. And he goes in and he deceives his father. 
and he swindles Esau out of the blessing. So Jacob took, by manipulation, everything that he missed when he was born. He took the birthright, and he took the blessing. And at the end of, of this passage last week in Genesis chapter 27, we see Esau openly wailing at all that he had lost. He had lost his birthright, he had lost his blessing, and he's openly wailing as a result of this. And this is where we find ourselves in Genesis chapter 27. We find ourselves with that backstory of Jacob to the place where we get today, where Jacob's in a bad place. Look at chapter 27, verse 41. Esau, after this was all over, after Jacob had just stole his blessing, Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given to Jacob. Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near. Then I will kill my brother. Keep going. When Rebekah was told, that's, that's their mother, Rebekah, when she was told what her older son Esau had said, she sent for her younger son Jacob and said to him, your brother Esau is consoling himself with the thought of killing you. Talk about Esau being in a really dark place. Esau is the place where emotionally the only thing that brings him solace is the thought, I am going to kill my brother, not figuratively. I am going to slay him for everything he did to me. Esau's hatred and revenge is growing in his heart. Esau's in a bad place, but Jacob's in a bad place too. Because now everything he had manipulated and swindled to get done is at risk. So Rebecca, who always favored Jacob, she says to her son, she says, I tell you what, I, I figured out what's going on. She says, go visit my brother Laban. It's time for you to get out of Dodge before your brother kills you. So get, go visit my brother Laban and spend some time with him. Now, we've met Laban before, back in Genesis chapter 24 in the series on Abraham. When Abraham was trying to find a wife for his son Isaac, he sent his servant back to his homeland where his servant ran across Laban. Laban, in turn, with her other brothers and fathers, decided that it would be okay to send Rebekah back with the servant to marry Isaac. We've met Laban before. Here we are, Rebekah saying, go visit my uncle back in our homeland. So, so she talks to her husband, really. Rebekah talks her husband into the idea. She says, listen, just like your dad sent the servant back home to find out a wife that's not like these pagan women around here, so you need to send Jacob home to find a wife that's not like these pagan women around here. Now the problem is, Laban lives 550 miles away. It was a 550 mile journey from the promised land where Abraham, Isaac, and now Jacob live back to where they came from in Ur of the Chaldees in that region. And so 550 miles, for us we think, Man, that's one hard day driving, or probably some of us would break it into two days of driving. For Jacob to do this, it was a 50-day journey. 
It would take him 50 days. You might as well be going to the moon. It's a long ways. It's basically a nether world or a nether planet. That's what Jacob has to do. Jacob has to leave. You see, Jacob got himself in a bad spot. His brother wants to kill him, and now he's forced to leave his family. He's scared, and he's alone. But the worst part of all this, the very worst part, is that it's all his fault. It's all his own fault. He made the choices that got him there. He lied. He manipulated. He stole. He deceived. Jacob was a conniver who has reaped what he has sown. And he can't be surprised that his brother makes himself feel better by dwelling on the thought of killing him. And God knows all of this. Which is why it's amazing knowing Jacob's backstory, knowing the hole that Jacob has dug for himself, knowing that God, or that Jacob has caused all of this heartbeat, God knowing that Jacob has caused all of this heartache, it's amazing that God would be, choose to bestow grace on Jacob anyway. Because if there's anyone in this story that is, does not deserve grace, it is Jacob. But isn't that what grace is? Grace is undeserved favor. It's a gift that one does not deserve. God knows why Jacob got to this place. And he knows your backstory too. He knows why you are like you are today. I don't know what happened in your life to get you to the place where you are today. I don't know what happened to that, good or bad. Oftentimes, like Jacob, we dig our own holes and then we jump in them and we find ourselves deep in our own sin and the consequences of our own sin. And we're just covered in, in the uck that we've created. One of my favorite stories about this happened years ago when I was a an assistant to an electrician. When I was in seminary, I worked uh, for this electrical company doing grunt work. And I'll never forget one time I was working uh, with a coworker. We were down in a basement doing a remodel job. And uh, the, there was a lot of work in the ceilings above our heads. So we had these short little ladders. We'd go up, we'd work in the ceiling and we'd come down. And in this particular house, it was an older house and it had something that's called an ejector pit in the house. An ejector pit is, is simply a big hole in the ground with a blender in it. And what it does is it takes all the sewage from the house and churns it up into a nice froth and then pumps it up to the sewer. I mean, we're talking gross, okay? If you can imagine gross. These things are sealed, hermetically sealed. Nobody wants to ever get in this. But in this particular remodel job, the plumber had to get in there for something. And so he had the cover off. And we all walked in there and we saw that. And we said, this is disgusting. Make sure you stay away from that. Well, my friend was going up and down the ladder, working up and down. He was in a hurry. He was trying to get something done. We all knew it was there. Up, down, up, down, up, down, down. He stepped right into the ejector pit. Up to his knee, he was covered in sewage. Like, that, you don't ever get that off you, you know? Like, that's not something you get out real easy. And he's covered in it. And we all laughed our heads off. Like we just laughed and mocked him incessantly because he knew full well that it was there. Uh, I believe he threw away all his clothes. He drove right home, took in the shower. He came out of the shower. His wife said, uh, get back in the shower, do that again. We were laughing at him and probably making it worse. You know, we were merciless to him because he'd covered in human excrement and it was all his 
fault. But you and I can figuratively relate to this. Hasn't there been a time where you created some hole for yourself and then walked in it and it's nobody's fault but your own? What life-altering mistakes have you made? Or what were the ones that were just your own fault? And maybe you don't even want to admit it, but you know. And the worst part is that people are brutal to us when we make these mistakes. They look at us and go, hey, you dug this own hole for yourself. Good luck getting out of it. We talk about natural consequences. They say, well, you know what? You reap what you sow. You dug the hole. Enjoy getting out of it. People are merciless to us. And while natural consequence is a valid form of parenting, we do protect our children from making life-altering, devastating choices. And we work with them. People can be brutal to us when we find ourselves in a bad place. But God's not like that. God extends grace And while there are times when God allows natural consequences to play themselves out in our lives, he loves us and he extends grace. When we find ourselves in a bad place, God knows why. And just like Jacob, he knows our backstory, but he extends grace to us. We find that the story picks up. Jacob interacts with his dad after Rebecca had hatched this plan to send him off. Jacob actually gives his son a blessing and then sends him on his way. Look at chapter 28, verse 5. Then Isaac sent Jacob on his way, and he went to Paddan Aram, to Laban, son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, who was the mother of Jacob and Esau. And this is where we find Jacob. He's off, and he is in a bad place. God knows why he's there. But that's not where the story ends. Jacob's off. The second thing you need to know today, if you find yourself in a bad place, not only does God not, God knows why you're in the bad place, but God also, when you're in a bad place, will meet you where you are. God meets you where you are when you're in a bad place. Jacob essentially now is running for his life. He's running from Esau. He knows Esau is ticked and he's tried so hard to manipulate circumstances so that the promise of God would be forced to come to him. Now his manipulation has him on the run and the people of God are in his rear view mirror and he finds himself separated from the very promise of God. The very thing he had worked so hard to manipulate into his advantage, he's now leaving and he's, as he looks in his figurative rearview mirror on his camel, and he looks backwards and sees the, the, the encampment of his people, he leaves. Look at chapter 28, verse 10. And we see what's going to happen when Jacob finds himself in this bad place. So Jacob left Beersheba, and he set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night. Because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and he lay down to sleep. And he had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth and with its top reaching to heaven. And the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And there above it stood the Lord. 
When you find yourself in a bad place, God meets you where you are. When you're in a bad place, God meets you. For Jacob, this happens on, a, on the road. He's on the road, r- leaving, running from everything he's known in life, and God meets him right there with a stone for a pillow. I mean, I think the author just kind of letting us know here, Moses is saying, Jacob is not in a good spot at all. He has, I mean, he there's no my pillow or tempur foam going on. There's not even a pile of feathers. He's got a rock for a pillow. And God initiates an encounter with Jacob here because Jacob is running the other way. But God hasn't just thrown his hands up and quit. Has anyone ever quit on you in life? They just say, you know, I'm so tired of this. I quit. God doesn't quit. God meets Jacob where he is. And God is actually pursuing Jacob. As Jacob leaves the promised people in the covenant of God, God is pursuing him. So when you're in a bad place, God meets you. Not just only where you are in life. He also meets you and speaks your language. God speaks a language that you and I can understand. Jacob has this imagery, this vision of a ladder or a stairway to heaven. Now, this is not a Led Zeppelin song. Uh, That's not what this stairway is about. But rather, it's a dream where Jacob meets the living God. Now, to understand this dream, we have to understand ancient Near Eastern culture because what God is doing is God is meeting Jacob in a language that Jacob can understand. So in the ancient Near East, we got our first picture of this ladder or stairway in Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11 is called the Tower of Babel. That's the account where the people tried to build a really big tower. And I don't know if you remember, it was a long time ago that I preached Genesis chapter 11. But this, this ziggurat, this tower, this, it sort of looked like a pyramid, not really. It had an outside staircase all the way to the top. And the purpose of this staircase on these ziggurats was to try to create a pathway for the gods to come from their realm down to earth. And ancient Near Eastern people believed they could control God. That's what Genesis 11 was about. They thought they could control the living God if they created a stairway and forced God to come down where they could control him. This is a common in- imagery in the ancient Near East. And what God is going to do here with Jacob is... Remember, Jacob doesn't really know God at this point. And he's going to say, let me introduce myself to you in a language that you can understand. And so this ladder or stairway to heaven here is the same idea. The realm of the gods is separate from the realm of men. And the gods stand at the top and then they connect with humanity via messengers. That's what the ancient Near East believed. So we see here this vision of angels ascending and descending the ladder. This would have made complete sense to Jacob. It's weird for us to think about this vision. This vision for Jacob would have gone, oh, that's kind of how I thought it worked. He would have understood this. And God is using the imagery of the culture that Jacob would have understood because God says, I want to know you. I love how God speaks to us in a way that we can understand. If we're listening, God doesn't expect us to speak some crazy heavenly language that we would never have the ability to know. God 
understands that we are placed in our culture where we are, and God will speak to us in a way that we can understand. Often in our times in our culture, that's through other godly people. If we're listening, God speaks to Jacob in a dream, and he uses Jacob's culture. Now, there's one really important difference here. In verse In chapter 28, verse 13, a lot of your Bibles will translate it, there above it stood the Lord. I think probably a better translation, as I've looked at the Hebrew, is there beside it stands the Lord. Sometimes Hebrew words are are a little bit tricky, um, talking geographically or location. But I think the evidence points to that this should probably be translated there beside it. And this is a huge difference. A God in the ancient Near East who stood at the top of the ladder is unaware of what's going on below unless his messengers are telling him. God is not at the top of the ladder. God is alongside the ladder to say, listen, I transcend your imagery. I know exactly what's going on. You see, the truth here is that God meets us where we are. God does not deserve, Jacob does not deserve to meet God here. Jacob can't say, hey God, you know, you owe me, so you better come meet me. Jacob can't say, look at me, I've done so well. I mean, he's a swindler, a cheat, and a liar. Yet God gives him grace nonetheless. God met Jacob where he was. And friends, this reminds us very clearly that God is doing the same thing today. And he did it nearly 1,300 years after the life of Jacob, nearly 2,000 years ago for you and I, God came one of us. And he doesn't stop speaking our language. Think about it. When we were helpless and undeserving, God came to us in Jesus. He came to us during Christmas, this Christmas invasion where God in the little baby became one of us. Because we can understand a baby. And when we were helpless, God didn't wait for us to learn his language. He spoke ours. He became a human being. God himself gave up his life to cover our sins. This is the gospel. So notice now what God says to Jacob. He set up dream. God's come to him. He's met him. And now look what he says. Verse 13, he says, I am the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham. And the God of Isaac. So immediately God is connecting his relationship with Jacob's dad and with his grandfather. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth. And you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And all the people on the earth will be blessed through your offspring. This is the exact same covenant that God made with Abraham and Isaac. Way back in Genesis 12, the language is the same. God said to Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And Abraham said, well, that's fine, but I don't have any kids. All right? And God took care of that. And he said, I'm going to give you a great land, the land all around you. Someday this will be yours. That was promised. And God says, I'm going to make you a great blessing, not only to your descendants, but to all the peoples of the world. God shares the same covenant now with Abraham, then with Isaac, and now with Jacob. And then God says this to Jacob, who is running from everything he has known. 
He says, I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. I love how God comes to Jacob and he meets him in this way. And God gave grace upon grace to Jacob. And here Jacob learns one of my favorite truths. One of my favorite truths is simply this. People can run from God, but God doesn't run from people. He absolutely gives grace upon grace. His feet are planted firmly in the ground. Jacob is running away from God and God is right there with him. Jacob's using his stone for a pillow. He has nothing, yet God is right there with him. Moses tells us the same truth later in Deuteronomy chapter 31.6. It's a phrase that you may have heard before. The promise is God will never leave you or forsake you. Later on, Jesus gives the same promise to us. If you're running from God, stop. You can't. He's right with you. Are you in a bad place? Well, you're not alone. And God is not far from you. When you're in a bad place, know that God knows why and know that God will meet you. And then the third truth you need to know today is that you're in a bad place. God is patient with your transformation. God is patient with your transformation. Jacob wakes up from his dream and he has three responses to his encounter with God. Uh, two of these are really good. One of them is not so great. The first, the first response that he has to God is in verse 16. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? There is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. The very first response that Jacob has to God's encounter is awe. Awe. This is awesome. It's a proper mix of fear and wonder. Jacob understands the massiveness of God and the tininess of Jacob. It's a awe and wonder is a completely appropriate response to God. Sometimes we take... Uh, God so for granted, we just say, oh God, he's my friend. And, you know, we use all this soft, nice language, which is true. God is our friend. We're declared a friend from God. But let us never become so familiar that we fail to be in awe and wonder over who God is. Jacob said he's awesome. He is filled with awe. The second response that Jacob had is to worship God. He worships him. Look at verse 18. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head. Don't you love how all the details of this story work together? He placed it under his head. He set, up it, set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the place Bethel, which means house of God, though the city used to be called Luz. Jacob worships God in a culturally appropriate way that he knew how. He used a stone, he built an altar, and he worshiped God. Doug McCone uh, reminded me this week of, of this simple truth that these altars were built because people understand that there was a uniqueness about a place where the realm of God intersected with the realm of people. Jacob knew that something unusual had happened. He met the, father, the, the God of his father and grandfather, and this living God should be worshipped. 
He was in awe of God. He worshiped God. These are two great responses to our encounter with God. The third one of Jacob's response is not so great. And we're going to see how God is very patient with Jacob's transformation. A third thing that Jacob does is to make a vow. I said, well, that doesn't sound such a bad idea. Well, if only Jacob had just stopped with the first two things, it would have been great. But Jacob doesn't really understand. He doesn't know God, and he doesn't know that he can trust God. So once again, in true form, he tries to manipulate God. Notice here these statements that he makes in this vow. Verse 20, then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will watch over me, if, well, didn't God just say he would do it? Okay. If, in other words, I don't know you, God, so I don't know if you're trustworthy. If he'll be with me and watch over me on this journey I'm taking, and if he'll give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I can return safely to my father's house, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And then of all that you give me, I'll give you a tenth. You notice the if-then statements? If you do this for me, God, then I'll follow through with my stuff. Jacob's trying to make a deal with God. If, he says, if you treat me right, God, I'll give you a tithe of my money. He says, if you do something good for me, I'll do something good for you. As if God needs something from Jacob. Jacob has fundamentally misunderstood who God is. And Jacob doesn't understand grace. In fact, he presumes upon grace. God has already shown him undeserved favor. But rather than asking for more, and rather than asking for himself to be transformed, Jacob begins to try to make a deal with God, forcing God to give him more. And that's just not the way grace works. And neither does faith. Faith doesn't make if-then statements to God. Those statements are, let's make a deal, or manipulative speech. And all they do is presume upon the grace of God, trying to force him to give you more. I'm always amazed when uh, I take one of my kids to Come and Go or Hy-Vee Gas Station, and uh, my little kids love little slushies from Come and Go, you know? And so we'll walk in there, and I'll get them a slushie, and they'll say, thanks, Dad, can I have a donut too? No, you cannot have a donut. Why not? <laughs> no, I want, that's not fair. And I say, okay, well, then we don't need a slushie either. That's how that's, okay, never mind, Dad, never mind. I mean, we are the same way with God, and that's what Jacob is trying to do with God here. Think about how you and I might presume on the grace of God. If you've placed your faith in Jesus, if you have said, Jesus, I need the grace and the mercy that your death and resurrection offered to me, if you have done this, God has given you a great grace, and that is his Holy Spirit. God has said, I want to know you and I want to transform you to be like me. The Holy Spirit is a gift to you. He, the Holy Spirit, comes to you and begins the tra transformation to make us more like Jesus. And yet we say, I don't know, God. 
give me a better job or give me a bigger house or better relationships or more financial security or good health. And I wonder what if we, like Jacob, are presuming upon the grace of God. The greatest grace that we might ask for is the one that God wants most to give. Could we say, make me more like Jesus? Could we say that? Could that be the thing we want most in life, is to be transformed to look more like Jesus? You know, we talk about it at Waukee Community Church all the time. Our mission is we're bringing people together to live like Jesus, love like Jesus, and give like Jesus. It's all about transformation, becoming like him. You see, God is so patient with Jacob. He's so patient. He meets him where Jacob, where he's at, and then he extends grace patiently. You see, in a bad place, God gives grace, and he moves us towards transformation. At Waukee Community Church, we also have a series of values or motives, things that drive us, and it reminds me of these here. One of our values is grace-filled authenticity. You know what? We want to extend grace to each other and be a place that accepts each other just like we are. Let's be real. I stand up here every week and tell you some ridiculous thing about myself because one of the things I want to do is model, let's be authentic and real with each other. And God loves us and takes us just like we are. And then, as many have noted, God loves us like we are, and he loves us too much to leave us there. So another value we have is transformational relationships. We care deeply about being transformed. God's greatest grace that he gives us and gives Jacob is transformation. It's transformation. When we're in a bad place, what we need most, even what, if we don't see it, is transformation. John Walton, a, a commentator on the book of Genesis and a, a professor of mine at the Moody Bible Institute years ago, uh, tells a story about a fisherman in Japan years ago. It's a fable or a, a made-up story, but the made-up story goes like this. The fisherman was poor and he had married a woman of the village who always resented their life as poor fishermen. They lived in a rundown shack that the wife hated, and she always wanted more, more, more. But her husband was a humble fisherman. One day the fisherman was out, and he was fishing, and he caught a giant fish. And he was so excited to come home and show his wife and say, look how I provided for our family today. And he got the fish in the boat, and I mean, as a complete surprise to him, the fish looked at him and talked to him. And the fish said, I am a magic fish. And he said, if you let me go, I will grant your wish. And the fisherman thought about it and he thought, all I really want is a good meal tonight. And so he thought, I think I'm just going to, you know, go take the fish home and take my meal. But the fish kept talking to him and, and the fisherman finally said, okay, I'll let you go. So he took the fish and he threw it back into the, the water and then he went home. The next day he came back and he came to the, to the shore and he called out to the fish and the fish showed up and he said, I think I know what I want. I said, uh, I live in a shack that isn't very sturdy. I'd just like my shack to be more sturdy, to handle the wind so that the cold, damp air doesn't blow in. And the fish said, done. 
He went home that night, and lo and behold, his little shack was all fixed up. It was sturdy. It was ready to go. His wife came out the door. He was so excited to tell her what had happened, and he did. He explained the magic fish, and she said, this is all you asked for? Is a repaired? What? Are you an idiot? She said, get back down there and ask that fish for a bigger house. They thought, well, I, I don't know if I can ask. I already asked one thing. Can I ask another thing? He went down, called to the fish. The fish came up, talked to the fish, told, told the fish what his wife wanted. The fish said, it's done. Lo and behold, he comes home. Bigger house. He expects his wife to be happy. He walks up. She comes out the front door and she says, this is it? I want a mansion. Give me a mansion. The fisherman says, I can't ask again. She said, get back down there and ask that fish again. So he goes down, calls up. Fish comes up out of the water. Says, I'll give you a mansion. Lo and behold, he comes home. There's his wife with a mansion. She said, now we he thinks she's going to be excited. Now they, they can entertain people. And she says, comes home and she goes, well, the house is great, but now I want the social status that comes along with having a mansion so that we can have people over to the house. Get back down there and ask. And he says, I can't ask that fish for another thing. But finally, she nagged him and nagged him and convinced him. He goes down, he asks the fish for this. He says, my wife wants a higher social status so she can realize in herself, so she can realize who she finally is and have arrived. The fish smiled, if a fish can smile, and, uh, <laughs> and said, it's done. And he went home and he came to the mansion and his wife was not there. He trudged back down the, the shore to where their old shack was and he found his wife there. And she finally said, she was crying because she had realized the absurdity of her discontented spirit. And as she was sitting there, she said, she began to realize how discontent and the fish in changing her status had made her from discontent to content and transformed the woman, not the house, not the status. And as I was reading that story that John Walton was sharing, I thought ultimately the greatest grace given to her was not the presumption upon what she asked. The greatest gift given to her was the gift of transformation. That is what is happening in the life of Jacob. God is transforming Jacob. And it's the greatest grace that he can give. In a bad place, God gives us grace and he moves us towards transformation. He knows why you're at where you're at. And he wants to meet you there and patiently prod you towards transformation. Let's close in prayer. God, would you make us more and more content with the grace of transformation? And would you change us? Would you humbly help us to pray the kinds of prayers that focus on transformation? And would we never presume upon the great grace of our great God? Jesus, you have given us mercy and grace beyond measure. And today we humbly stop and worship you because of who you are. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.